Like, obviously, I don't want to give him my money, but I just want to beat Phil Mickelson. Like, I'm super competitive. I want to beat him, and he's beat me plenty. I want to beat him. So he doesn't like coming up to Shady Canyon anymore because I've had the best of him at my course. And uh, we're warming up on the range, and, and he's like, all right. He's like, I got a lot of rules in my life. He's like, but rule number 24 is never take on Steely at Shady Canyon. I said, I'm going to break that rule today because I think something great's going to happen. And we went out, and I was seven under after five, and I shot 59. <laughs> and he was like, I knew it. Rule number 24. <laughs> Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck, back for another podcast with The Knockdown. Thanks, as always, for listening. I am delighted to be joined by PJ Tour veteran Brendan Steele. Thanks for taking the time, sir. Thanks for having me, Alan. <laughs> so... You have quietly had a very good career out here on the PGA Tour. Three wins, more than two dozen top tens, 14 capital M in earnings. So almost a decade in, how do you assess what you've accomplished? Yeah, I mean, a a lot more than I ever thought that I would. Um, I'm just uh, a kid from a small mountain town with a weird grip and a weird swing who didn't pick the game up until I was 13 years old. So um, at every level that I played, I, I didn't think that I was going to be good enough, and, and I just loved the game and, and kind of kept going and um, didn't want to get a job, so I just, <laughs> just kept after it and kept working hard, and, and I've been able to, to learn a lot about myself and my game, and, and uh, it's worked for me. Unlike most of our listeners, I've actually been to Hemet, you know, where you went to high school. So paint a picture for those who haven't. I mean, it's not exactly a golf, you know, boomtown. No, and that, for me, that was the, the big golf area because uh, I grew up in Idlewild up in the mountains and, and there's no golf course up there. And then I had to go to, to Hemet to high school, which is about 40 minutes away. Um, it's kind of a retirement community. It's like a Palm Springs, but not as nice and... and uh, not as big, not as many golf courses, um, and uh, it was it was a good place to go to high school. I had a had a fun time there and everything, but um, it, it's not exactly a golf mecca or a mecca of any sorts. Um, so, and I always tell the story. My parents, um, before I could drive, I would take the bus down in the morning to Hemet High. Um, take forty five minutes on a bus to get down there. My mom would come pick me up after school, and then she'd drive me over to the golf course. She'd go back to work. My dad would come down after work and pick me up and drive me home. And at the time, that seems like totally normal, yeah. right? Meanwhile, my parents are each making a trip down and back every day right. to pick me up. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, I can't thank them enough for all the hard work that they put in just so I could play a little high school golf. I mean, it's it, is it high desert. Is that how you describe it? I mean, I, it's it's an unusual kind of part of the world. It's, it's yeah, on the edge so, of the mountains and the desert. Yeah, so, so Hemet's kind of straight desert it's like i guess it's like a thousand um feet in elevation something like that and then idlewild where i grew up uh 5600 feet at our house so that's it's up in a pine forest and and you know over a mile high so snow in the winter time and um i learned to play just kind of hitting balls into a net in my backyard my dad put in a net and um a little artificial putting green and he dug out this uh bunker and put some sand from the hardware store in there and i just hit balls off the house and you know just goofed around just find a way to get a club in your hands how many broken windows are we talking i didn't hit any windows which was good on the when i was outside we were goofing around my dad and i were goofing around with these balls that are like they're foam but they have a hard rubber core so they're supposed to only go like 40 yards or something like that we're 
goofing around one day and he said, just hit one. It, it's fine. It's not going to do anything. My mom's not at the house, you know, so <laughs> she's like, just hit a full shot. Like, it's fine. And so I hit a full six iron. I remember in the living room and it just, it hit the window and the window cracked. And we were just like, okay. <laughs> Who got in more trouble? You or your dad? Uh, my dad, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love the stories of, of guys who find an unusual path uh, to golf success. Like Tony Funau, we did a podcast earlier this year, and he's talking about his dad hung a mattress in the garage in the winters in Salt Lake City. He could barely feel his hands, and yeah. that's how he learned the game. You know, there's there's Seve on, on a beach with a discarded three iron, you know, Vijay Singh and, uh, under a mango tree in Borneo. I mean, I think there's something to learning the game that way where – when you, you completely figure it out on your own, you have a little more belief and no one's told you how to play. You've, you've figured it out and there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely something to it. I always kind of take it as like, if you love it, then you'll find a way to get a club in your hands and you can become a good player that way. So it doesn't have to be the, you know, I grew up on the fanciest country club with the nicest range and the nicest balls and perfect weather and all that stuff. You can just find a way to get a club in your hands, whether it's putting inside, chipping inside. I did a um, inside the PGA Tour a few years ago where I, I showed people you could chip to your dog. Like I would hit chips to my dog and he'd bring the <laughs> balls back, you know, so I got a ball retriever uh, installed there. Um, but whatever the case may be, like you, you can find ways, whether it's hitting wiffle balls or, or chipping in the house, putting in the house, whatever, to just get better at the game. And, and if you have a club in your hands, you can figure some things out. Did you go to any junior events at a really swank place and there's kids out there with brand new equipment and video cameras and never feel like, wow, I'm a little out of my depth here? Yeah, I mean, I definitely did some of that. Uh, a lot of the, the tournaments that I played were, were kind of smaller local events, so there were a lot more kids that were like me um, there. Maybe they grew up closer to a golf course or started from an earlier age. But um, And there wasn't, when I was growing up, there wasn't as much coaching of younger players as we have now I mean now it seems like everybody has their kid getting lessons every week from five years old and you know all that kind of stuff we didn't do as much of that in those days Um, at least not the kids that I was around people weren't videoing obviously there was no track man stuff like that going on but um, there were definitely times where I was really uncomfortable and intimidated by either the the players in the field or the place that we were playing um but uh, it, it was always a lot of fun. I mean, I played a lot of Palm Desert and what they call Desert Junior Golf. And I, I don't know how we even did it in those days because it was, looking back at it, it was like 11.30 tea time in July, <laughs> carrying your own clubs, and you have to bring your own water. You know, so it's not like playing out here where yeah. you've got water on every tee and somebody else is carrying your clubs and whatever. And it yeah. was just normal to me. It was like, it's 115 degrees. I'm carrying my clubs. That's nuts. I'm 14 years old and, and I'm bringing all my own water with me. And now you think about it and it would be like, oh, we can't have anybody doing that. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, I wouldn't put my kids through that. Anyone ever drop in the sun just from like mini heat stroke? Yeah. Oh yeah. There was some of that for sure. I think you're a little more resilient when you're young for some reason, but but yeah, we would have kids that, that got sick out there from not having enough water or heat stroke or whatever. That's great. What's the hottest temperature you've ever played golf in? You know, probably like right at 120 yeah probably right at 120 and probably in palm desert um uh, wow. which which is really hot it feels totally different than 95 with a lot of humidity you know like when we go to malaysia and it's it's 90 95 and there's a ton of humidity it feels totally different and probably worse that way but yeah um you know it's a dry heat everybody says that so <laughs> no problem yeah right
I don't say that. Yeah, not I, at 120. There's nothing dry about that. <laughs> I live in foggy Carmel because when it gets above 68 degrees, I'm miserable. There's no such thing as a dry heat. Um, so at what point did you think, you know, I might actually be able to make a living doing this? Well, in high school, I just wanted to make the high school team. And then um, I got good enough to be able to play Division One golf at uh, UC Riverside, which is obviously not a big powerhouse, but had a Division One team. It was getting started when when I went there. It was the first year of it. They actually had a Division Two team in the 70s. Gary McCord played there, right. and they got rid of the team, got rid of the program. I always blame Gary for that. <laughs> and then uh, they brought it back in 2001 and went Division One. The whole school went Division One. Um, and so that I saw that as an opportunity to play. I was close enough to home. I was about an hour from home, but enough space that I felt like I was away at school. Yeah. Um, and I knew I was going to play when I went there. It wasn't like, come on, maybe redshirt, see if you can make the team. I knew I was going to get a bunch of opportunities to go play. And so I played every tournament for four years there. I played 52 events there. And then I just didn't want to get a job. So I was like, okay, well, now I'm going to go play <laughs> mini tours, and I'm just going to go see. Right. I mean, you're, you're a Golden State Tour legend. You went yeah, crazy yeah, there. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Um, so I did a lot of Golden State yeah. right away, and, and we had the Spanos Tour in those days, which was a bigger deal. Um, A.G. Spanos, who... Um, as, I don't know if he's still the owner of the Chargers, but he yeah. owned the Chargers at least at one point. Um, he had a tour, and, and that was the big purses then. You know, it was like 16000 to the winner. Yeah. How um, much you have to pay to enter? It was, I think it was around 1000 to enter. So $1,000 just, yeah. just to get in the field? Yeah. So you would, you would sign up. That sounds like up. a pyramid scheme. I mean, yeah. You'd sign up for the... Um, You'd sign up for the season. It would be like twelve grand for twelve events or something yeah. like that. You know. Where and did you get that money? That was a combination of my so my brother and my sister in law. My sister in law was one of the original employees at Google, oh, and so good when, choice. when the Google stock was going public, they gave me a hundred shares in Google stock. I was graduating from college; it was going public, and so. Um, it went public, and I cashed that in, and I, I just kind of played off of that. And then, obviously, my, my parents would help me with whatever I needed. But I was able to to play well enough that that was enough to get me from year to year and keep me moving forward. So um, it, it was it was good. It was well-timed, and, and it worked out for me. If you had held on to that stock, what would it be worth today? Uh, I think almost 10 times what I sold it for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. But, on yeah. the other hand, you look what you made out yeah, here. a good exactly. investment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I needed it at the time. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, I'll just turn this in and, and, and yeah. you know, keep the money. It was like, no, I need this to, to go chase my dream. So Why don't you um, have Google on your hat? I mean, that's a great story. That, that, that would be a good story. Google, where yeah. are you? Let's go. <laughs> Hello, Google. Uh, Hello, Google. I'm not sure if we have any, uh, if the founders of Google listen to the podcast, but we're going to see what we can do on that. Yeah, yeah, get them in touch with me. Um, yeah, and then uh, so I, I did all those mini tours and things like that. Um, what was the nadir? I mean, when what, what what moment of your mini tour career did you say, all right, I quit, I can't do this? I never had that moment um, where I totally didn't want to play. I obviously had, like, bad rounds and bad stretches where I thought, like, I, I'm going to have to do something else. Like, this is miserable. I'm out, you know, somewhere a long way from my family and yeah. friends and I'm playing poorly and I'm losing money. Um, <clears throat> but I always wanted to keep going. Um, and I always said, as long as I feel like I'm improving and I'm enjoying it, I'm going to keep going. Cause people would always ask me from right when I turned pro, how long are you going to do this? Right. Like, you know, there's always the people that are like, well, that's ridiculous. Like go get a real job, no matter what you're doing. Right. Right. It's Meanwhile, like, they hate their job, but they're right. still telling you to go get one. Right. Yeah. Well, when you, when you're actually going to do something, you know, go get a real job and be a real person. So I would always say, as long as I feel like I'm improving and I'm enjoying it, I'm going to keep going. 
So I went to Canadian Tour Q School and, and played Canadian Tour for a couple of years, um, all the while going to PGA Tour Q School. And um, I finally got through that on my third try to get to Nationwide Tour, Web.com Tour, um, and played out there for three years. But at each level, I was like, I don't know how much better these guys are going to be. You know, how much better Canadian Tour than Golden State Tour? And how much better is Nationwide Tour than Canadian Tour? And how much better is the PGA Tour? And so up until the time when I won my first event, in 2011 on the PGA Tour, I didn't know if I could even compete out here. And, and that was your rookie year. I mean, it happened fast. So did you think, wow, this is not as hard as I thought? Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that for sure. And you see that a lot with guys who have kind of early success. Right. You kind of think then it's going to be easier for you after that. And and then it took me five years to get my second win. So, yeah. you know, I really, and I wasn't sure that I was ever going to get a second win after that. I was like, maybe I'm just kind of destined to be like, that middle kind of guy where it's like you're always going to get your card back kind of thing but you're not you're not going to win or not going to win very often not going to get many chances um so that definitely set me back 2012 was a really tough year because i i thought it should be easier and i thought that i was going to have a lot more success and if i wasn't going to win i didn't want to know about it you know i was like i'm either going to play well and i'm going to be interested or I don't want to be here and playing bad. Right. That's no fun. <laughs> so that that can be really hard. So I, and I think you see that with a lot of guys over the years. No, it's true. I mean, there, there's a long list of guys who won early in their career and then just sort of faded away. And this, I do this. I do this weekly mailbag, and um, a reader sent in a question this week saying, "How can Brent Seneca play so mediocre for so long and then go crazy and and play incredible golf?" And you know, obviously, part of it's physical. Maybe it's a little tweak in the swing. But I mean, to me, so much of it is just belief and and where you are mentally. I mean, how, how would you put a number? If you had to put a percentage on the struggles you had, I mean, is it physical or mental? I would say it's probably twenty five percent physical and seventy five percent mental. Yeah. It's a lot of it's confidence, and and then the confidence can come from the physical side. So, like if you if your technique is off with whatever part of your game that you're struggling with you're not going to have confidence with it. So then then it becomes more mental, right? Yeah. It's it's not like guys are flushing it on the range, holding every putt and then going like, "Oh man, I suck." Yeah. Guys are going out and they're having bad experiences, they're driving it poorly, they're missing putts, they're chipping bad, whatever it is. And then the confidence goes down and then it starts to bleed into other parts of your game because you start to worry about, "Well, well, am I going to hit a fairway today? Am I going to hold putts today?" And and then it kind of spirals out of control sometimes. Um and that's what I've noticed with me for sure. Um, when I go out and I don't think as much and I'm a little bit more aggressive and have a good attitude, I normally play pretty well. It's when I'm really conscious of my technical side that, that I don't play as well. And guys get caught into that rabbit hole thinking they need to be perfect all the time. I certainly do it. Um, and so with, with a guy like Brant, like, I don't know exactly what he's been going through. I don't know if he's like, hasn't been striking it well, or hasn't been putting as well as he normally does, or if just been confidence or like, you never know what's going on with the person. Right. right. So, um, but it shows you how great all the players are out here and how great a player like that is. I mean, he's won the FedEx cup. He's won a ton of times out here. So you, you know, it's in there. Yeah. Right. And then, so when he gets that little bit of confidence, a little bit of feel, all of a sudden he shoots 59 in the first round Yeah. And shoots 21 under or whatever he did. So, yeah. Um, but that's how close guys are. You're never quite as far away as you think. And you're, when you're playing well, you're never that far away from playing poorly either. Like yeah. you can make one little adjustment and it can start this chain reaction that you end up <laughs> playing poorly for six months. And you're yeah. like, oh, I just was trying to do this one little thing with my swing, but now I, now I stink. So yeah. 
that's an, you said something a minute ago that interests me, like how players define themselves. And, you know, you're thinking, oh, maybe I'm just going to be a guy who keeps my card. I, I mean, that's how, you know, fans and reporters, I think we put players into little boxes. Um, but it sounds like you guys do it yourselves as well. Where, sure. Yeah, uh, you can. I mean, there's a lot of time in this game to think about, you know, what your priorities are, where you are in your life, your career, um, and where you want to go. You know, do you do you want to put in all the time to try to be the best you can be? Do you want to make changes that could derail you but will make you way better if, if it works out? Or are you just content with, you know, kind of the status quo and being like, you know, I'd love to win, but, you know, I'm, I can have a nice living out here and I can hopefully catch lightning in a bottle here and there and maybe I can have a chance. Or I, And I've always been more of the, like, I want to – press through because I don't want to look back and be like oh, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have done that or maybe I could have done more I, I hate like thinking about that that drives me crazy like thinking yeah. that I'd be 50 years old and going like oh, I wish I would have tried harder or I wish I would have made this adjustment or I wish I would have done more putting drills or I wish I would have done whatever like I want to be able to finish my career and be like all right that was as good as I could do you know yeah. like I wish I would have done better but that's as good as I can do <laughs> So you're in that five-year winless drought. I mean, where are you mentally at that point? Yeah, I mean, a lot went on during that time. I mean, I had, had the early success, and then 2012 was really tough. 13 started to get better. 14 was better. My, my years were getting better through that stretch, but then we had the, um, the anchoring ban, and I right. was a belly putter guy from 06 to 14. Yeah. So then it was like, well, I don't know if this is going to derail my career. And so I started with it in 2014, trying to get a little bit ahead of, right. of the, the change because I didn't know how it was going to go. Um, luckily, I adapted pretty quickly. Uh, my first two weeks with the short putter, I finished fifth, both events, so Travelers and Quicken. And I was like, okay, now you know you can do it. Yeah. So that, that was a big weight off my shoulders. But I wasn't sure that I could hold the putts required to win a tournament still that way. Um, I didn't know if my technique would be good enough. You know, there's so many hours of time that are needed in order to get those kind of skills taken care of. And then you have to have good reads, good speed, um, have really good process when you're putting. A lot of putting is just so process oriented. It's mental, it's confidence, sure. it's how you're going to approach it. Um, and so that was in that stretch, I was really worried about that. Like, could I actually win with a short putter? Or is it just like, you can keep your card and kind of finish between 50th and 100th on the FedEx Cup every year. Because mm -hmm. um, I figured I could do that because I yeah. did that a few years. Um, yeah. And then so the, the win the first time at Safeway, that really validated a lot of things for me. It validated that I could do it again, that I could do it with a short putter. It was raining that week. I'm not a big rain guy. <laughs> I'm a Southern California guy. Yeah, so right. um, so it did, that did a lot for me. Are you still bitter about the anchoring ban that USGA took away, you know, 10,000 hours of your, your practice, essentially? I, it, you know, it's fine for me now. Like, I feel like I'm as good a putter or a better putter now. Um, and I've had, I've had two wins in four years with the short putter, and I had one in five with the belly yeah. putter. So um, I, I'm bitter about it in the sense that I don't think it was fair overall, whether it negatively affected me or not is a little different but there are a lot of guys that it did negatively affect and we're yeah. seeing guys come out of it now too like i mean webb's putted incredible this year played incredible so that's really good to see keegan's had a really good year but there are guys that that it really really hurt um and so that that's tough for me to swallow i think um and and i always likened it to like 
well, why don't we just get rid of hybrids? And, and then, you know, Tiger's three iron is better than, you know, somebody who can't swing it as fast or compress it as well or do whatever. Like, there's other things in the game that make up for, right. you know, deficiencies, if you will. Yeah. Um, so I, I always had a little bit of a, a problem with that, and I, I will continue to have a problem with that, but I have a problem with kind of everything the USGA does anyway. <laughs> it's interesting how, I mean, the USGA used to be, kind of the stewards of the game and that people looked to the USGA for leadership it, it seems like the constituency they've lost more than any other is the tour player I mean they've just I mean I hear us all the time open weekend even leading up to it what is it that bothers the average tour player so much about the USGA I think for me and and I can't speak for the rest of the tour although I will say that most of the tour I don't know that you can find a guy that really likes him like I've talked to, I've looked. <laughs> yeah, and I, I won't name any names, but I've talked to guys who have won U.S. Opens, and they go, "I hate the USGA." I'm like, "You've won a U.S. Open." They're like, "Yeah, but it doesn't mean that I like them. Like I hate them." So I, I think for me, the biggest problem is we play 46 events, let's say, on the PGA Tour, and they're run tremendously. Like they're trying to put out a great product every week, what, and whatever the score may be, it may be some weeks it's really low, some weeks it's not but they're trying to give a good product to the fans, a good tournament for the players, and have the best player win. The USGA always feels like they're trying to manufacture something to me, and it feels like there's nothing worse than people who think they know everything about what's going on, and they really don't have any idea. So as soon as they start dragging former PGA Tour players in to help them set up the golf course and make decisions for them, they'll probably be in a lot better shape, but by the time they do that, it may be too late. Yeah. I and mean, they, they brought in Nick Price, which is a start. I mean, I love Nick Price. But yeah. He hasn't played the tour in, what, 15 years. I mean, it's right. like maybe find someone who's a little more, knows the modern equipment and the modern sure. game. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was interesting. And, and they, I was really giving them credit this year at Shinnecock for the first two rounds. Right. They were, it's I perfect. Like, I was like, man, I, I really want to say that they screwed it up, but they did a nice job. Yeah. Like, they, they, the greens were soft and they were slow, which is – they were soft because of the weather. They were slow because they need to be because they're so yeah. crazy. But they gave us really hard pins the first two days. I mean, they're right on fall-offs. They're using more slope. They were kind of making it just right. And I think they had the scores right where they wanted them. Um, and then I think DJ freaked them out a little bit because they looked at the weather and they went, okay, it's not going to be windy on Saturday. Yeah. DJ's at four under. Can't have him shooting six under and getting to ten under. Again, because we need to manufacture the score. We want right. the score to be where we want it to be right meanwhile there's only there's only two guys under par going into the weekend so you've got it really right where you want it yeah if you just let it play out it probably works perfectly and it's okay if the number one player in the world is playing the best that's kind of what you're trying to identify the best player and he was in the harder wave yeah. and he shot four under yeah. so he's playing that much better than everybody else yeah. let him be at four under par it's not a disaster I mean, what killed me was when they said, well, we didn't think it was going to be windy on Saturday. You're right by the ocean. Yeah. I mean, look around. It's always windy. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care what the forecast says. The wind is going to blow. It's, yeah. not, it's not that complicated. I got out on the first hole on Saturday, and I hit it maybe 30 feet above the hole. The pin was right in the front, right in front of the uh, false front. And I said to my caddy, Christian Donald, Luke's brother, I said, something's different. I'm like, I don't know what it is, but something's different. They did something to these greens before I'd even hit a putt. You're just looking at it. Yeah, I'm just looking at it, and I'm like, something's up. I don't know what it is, but I don't like it. <laughs> and he's like, all right, well, this one's probably going to be quick. It's got the slope and the whatever. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll play it really defensively. I hit it 10 feet by yeah. on the first hole, and I was yeah. like, 
uh-oh. <laughs> like, we're going to have some problems today. <laughs> this That's amazing. is not you looking could, good. It's amazing you can just see it visually. Yeah. I mean, part, you know, the USJ, to some degree, they'd say that's a victory because they want to push the players to the breaking point mentally. So they want to get in your head, but it gets to a point where it's not quite golf when you can't stop the ball. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, if you want the greens to be that fast, you then have to go with really basic pins. you got to yeah. go really flat yeah. and just be like, okay, you're not going to hit it in the middle of the screen and then just put it off the green. Yeah. Like, you're not going to hit it in the middle of the screen and put it into a bunker yeah. and have Phil Mickelson running over to whack the ball back. Like, that's – it's ridiculous. <laughs> what did the players think about what Phil did? Because I know you guys are buddies and you play rounds yeah. together, so you have some insight into it. I mean, everybody has a different opinion on it. I thought it was great. <laughs> I thought it was great because, to me, it just represented the fact that it was completely ridiculous. Because, I mean, I was playing – right around Phil, I think, that day. And I'm watching guys putt it. The, the guy I was playing with on that hole putted it into the bunker yeah. from 20 feet, right? And then two holes later on 15, I watched the two guys behind us putt it off the green, you know? And, and I was like, when I saw what he did afterwards, I was like, yeah, I get it. Like, I am right there with you. Like, I was in the exact same boat as you out there. So, so I thought it was great. I thought it was just like a yeah, I've been trying to win this thing for 27 years, and this is what you guys are doing? Like, yeah. come on. Yeah, yeah. It was a political protest for yeah. sure. Uh, something you said earlier before we got on the USJ, which is it's always fun to kick around the USGA. Yeah. Who, who doesn't enjoy fun. that? Yeah. <laughs> but the, um, how you won more with a short putter, do you think there was like a self-esteem issue? Because the perception is if you're using the belly putter, you're not a good putter, right? Yeah. That was, It's a crutch. And right. so when you, get, when you gave it up, does it change your mentality? Like, hey, I'm, I'm like everybody else now. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, I I always feel like, and this is probably more self-imposed, but I always feel like there's more attention on me because I was a belly putter guy to see how I'm going to putt. Yeah. And because, in general, I've been a really good ball striker over the last five years. And so if I putt well, I have a really good week. And so is that because, you know, I'm just a streaky putter, or is that because putting's the one thing that I – you know, need to keep working on, or is that because I used the belly putter for so long? I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of all things. Maybe it's because that's a little bit more process-oriented and confidence-oriented rather than just, like, smashing drivers. You just kind of – it's a little more reactionary, right? You kind of just let that go a little bit more. But there was definitely a little self-esteem thing going on there. So that's really interesting because there is this widespread belief that you can turn yourself into a great ball striker through hard work. Whereas it's kind of putting's more like voodoo, you know, it's like this mystical thing. You're, you're born a great putter. Well, I mean, no one's born to how to putt. It's a learned skill. But, I mean, can you make yourself a great putter? Or is it is it something that's just that's hard to define and hard to put your wrap your arms around? I, I it's mean, a little bit of both because you see guys with perfect putting strokes that don't hold putts. Yeah. Now, why are they not holding putts? Maybe it's because they don't read them right. Maybe it's because their speed's a little off. Because you can have a perfect stroke and it doesn't mean your speed's going to be good. Yeah. And maybe it's because of the way that they're thinking over the putt. Maybe it's a little too technical. Maybe it's a little bit, like, worried that they're not going to make it. I mean, I've gone through plenty of stretches where it's, like, just begging for putts to go in. Like, yeah. please go in. Please. And they never go in when you're doing that. <laughs> but if you're running really good process and you're really getting in deep into the putt, um, that's when I when I put my best. And then the problem is I can run my best pre-shot and process and feelings over the ball after I've already seen a few go in. It gets better and better and better. Yeah, so, yeah, like, if I start loop. out, yeah, yeah, if I start out really putting well, 
it normally ends up becoming easier and easier and easier. Whereas if it goes the other way, it becomes harder and harder and harder just to run run that process that I'm trying to run. That was a Harvey Panic thing. You know, always eat dinner with good putters. Yeah, right. They're in a good mood. Like it's yeah. it, it it just it feeds on itself. Right, for sure. So, sure. I mean, as you said, I mean, I was looking at your shot link stats. I mean, your ball striking stats have been fantastic for this year and going back. And obviously the one thing that stands out is stroke gain putting. So yeah. how, is it just putting in the hours on the practice screen? No, I don't think so. I think it's a little bit more like I, I definitely have had some technical flaws in my stroke that I've been trying to get rid of, and they come out more under pressure. So, so that's been – uh, a little bit of something that I've had to, to go through, and I've, I think I've fixed that now. I've changed from claw to cross-handed, and with the claw, I still had some belly putter tendencies in there where I would kind of um, let the butt end stay still, and the putter head would kind of flip over, yeah. and that's that's how you putt with the belly putter. You yeah. let the butt end stay still, and you flip the head. Right. So I think going cross-handed fixed that. I did that just a few weeks ago, and then it's about finding the, the feel with that when I'm playing in tournaments and going like, okay, I, I feel confident enough with this. I feel good about it. Um, I've, I feel like this year hasn't been as good a year with everything. Like I haven't hit it quite as good. I haven't chipped it quite as good. And, and then, so then the putting hasn't been quite as good either. So there's yeah. a lot of things that, that go into that. Um, I mean, it's pretty good if you feel that way and you're what 38th on the FedEx yeah, cup going in the right. playoffs. I mean, it, it's it, like you're, you're, you're trying to raise your ceiling, but your floor has come up dramatically. Right, right. My floor, I think, is pretty high. And I was talking to, to my coach, Chris Mason, two days ago about it. Because he's like, you think you're in a slump right now. And he's like, you're basically two good rounds away from being like, the whole year has gone really nicely. Yeah. Like, I, I played really bad on Sunday at the U.S. Open. And I played uh, really bad on Saturday at the Players. And, like, if you have two decent rounds there you probably don't miss the cut at Travelers and PGA either, right? you know? And so you're a couple shots, a couple rounds away from being like, this has been a great year. Because up until the Masters, it had been really good. It had yeah. been really solid. I finished third in Phoenix. I had a couple decent WGCs. I lost in a playoff to get through my group at the match play to Tyrrell Hatton. Um, finished like 17th in Mexico. Like everything was really solid up until the Masters. And then I kind of missed the cut at the Masters, started searching for some things, trying to figure things out. Took a lot of time off this year. We had a baby last October. So that's a big change too. Yeah, you know, you don't, don't know how much that affects you as far as like your routine and what you're doing. Because all I want to do is spend time with her. Yeah. So I've got to drag myself out to practice. And then when things aren't going good, you're kind of like, well, what am I doing out here? Like, why am I putting... I it's so frustrating when you put a bunch of time in and then you don't get any good results, especially now for me, because I'm like, I'd rather be spending time with my baby. If I'm going to spend eight hours on the range and then not play good next week, like what's the point? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I can go play bad without practicing. I can do that. <laughs> that's easy. Yeah. Yeah. That's frustrating. Um, this is, you know, a guy like Adam Scott, who has accomplished a lot, but we all would like to see him do more. I mean, I heard him say not that long. He was like, I can be a great husband. I can be a great father. And I can be a great golfer. But I can't be all three at the same time. And so he's, you know, now he's had his, his family's growing. He's kind of de-emphasized the golf. And it, I mean, it shows, even if someone is, t is obviously talented as that, I mean, it shows in his results. He's been struggling for two years, and he doesn't really have any regrets because the family's so important. But yeah. as you said, you only get one chance to have a golf yeah. career. So um, it's how how you how you 
balance those things. That that's a really complicated equation. That's yeah, obviously you're still figuring out. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to balance it. You got to practice smart, and you got to you got to do the right things. We got to work on the things you don't want to work on. So you got to be like, okay, I'm going to go out. For me, it's like I got to go out and run putting drills and be really focused, hit less putts, but be really more intense on it and like really working on things, um, rather than going out and hitting a bunch of balls, hitting a bunch of drivers, you know, that's not as important for the most part. Sometimes you just have to go figure things out. But, um, and I think Adam's right too. It's hard to be all three of those things. Like to be a good golfer, you have to be really selfish. You have to be like, you take the baby and don't count on me to be home for dinner or to take you on a date or to do, you know, any of the stuff that I should be doing with you either. Like, cause I need to be doing this. And like, it. It's really tough. I think in golf, it's different than other sports, too, because our careers are so long out here. can be so long, anyway. Like, at 35, for me, my buddies that play other sports are either done or winding down. And then they're kind of going like, okay, now I'm going to get married, and then I'm going to have kids, you know, in my late 30s kind of thing. Like, I I played, played, played. That was the focus. But I knew that I was going to play from 22 to 35 you know or 22 to 32 or whatever it is my bunch of my hockey buddies they're right around the same age as me and they're all kind of winding down and and none of them are married and you know now they are just going to probably want to get married have kids and play golf you know that's going to be their <laughs> You're thing live your now. life yeah. yeah exactly so but for us like at 35 for me I hope that I have a lot of years to still be really competitive out here and like I mean, it wouldn't be crazy to think that in 10 years I could still win a tournament out here. I mean, guys are doing it. Phil's yeah. doing it at 48. You know, Furyk's competitive. You know, there's plenty of guys that are, are great players into their late 40s now. I mean, what is the depth of your ambition? I mean, what, what do you want to accomplish? That's a good question. Um, I've always been really big on consistency and, and probably to a fault because I get more mad at myself for missing a cut than – I would for like just kind of playing mediocre for a while. Like if I if I miss a cut, it really, really gets to me. I really don't like it. Yeah. I would rather finish like 20th three weeks in a row than finish go miss cut fifth miss cut. Whereas the tour really revolves around those big finishes. Right. It's like you should kind of miss a cut and just be like, eh, who cares? Yeah. It doesn't matter. Like let's go win next week. And I think that's what the best players in the world do. I think like if Brooks misses a cut, which probably doesn't happen that often, but if he does. He's like, I don't care. The next week I'm going to go win, you yeah. know, or Ricky or whoever. Yeah. Like, those guys are all going to think that way. Rory, Phil, they're going to be like, yeah, I don't like missing cuts, but who cares? And I'm a little bit more of like a – I just want to be consistent all the time. So, for me, it's been a little bit more like I'd like to win every year. Like, yeah. that's that's the goal now that I've won the last two years is get a win every year, have a, have a season with multiple wins in a year, and then obviously want to win a major. I mean, everybody wants to. Right, and I'll take any of them. I want the masters the most, but I'll take any yeah, of them. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's I. I just want to keep winning. I mean, if I could get to ten wins and a major in my career, I think that would be pretty incredible for a kid with a weird grip from Idlewild. Yeah, that would be strong. But so, how much does that play out the w- the way you, you actually construct your rounds? I mean, should you should it should it be three holes? more per round where you actually fire at the flag instead of going for the center of the green? Or is it taking on riskier shots that give you a chance to win but could lead to a missed cut? I mean, is, is, is it a physical thing or is it, is it your approach? Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit of a, more of an approach. I mean, you have to pick your spots out here for sure. You have to know when you can be aggressive and when not to be. And that's one of the biggest things of why great players are great. I mean, look at Jack, look at Tiger, 
like when we've watched them dissect courses and win majors, they're not being overly aggressive. They pick their spots and hit great shots. But yeah. it's just as good a shot when Tiger hits two iron, five iron to 25 feet, right? Because he knows, like, I'm not going to hit my driver in trouble here. I'm going to hit two iron in the fairway, and then I'm going to hit five iron to 25 feet, and then you're going to have to go make a birdie to get one shot closer to me, yeah. right? That's just as good as, as a guy who hits driver in a wedge to a foot because he's doing exactly what he wants to do. So you have to really pick your spots, but I think it's a little bit more of an approach um, as far as, like, if I'm swinging really good, I need to hit a lot of drivers. And that that's the game these days, you know, is DJ, Brooks, Rory, you can take over with your driver. And I don't hit it quite as far as those guys do, but I hit it far enough, and, and I hit it straight enough usually that I can hit a bunch of drivers and, and take advantage of that. So I need to be more aggressive there, and then – and then if you're feeling good with everything, you, you shift your target lines a little closer to the flag. You know, instead of 10 feet left, you're 5 feet left. Instead of, you know, if you got 3 iron into a green, instead of just trying to get it up there somewhere, you're trying to hit it 20 feet and somewhere you can run it in. But it, it, there's no one answer, and it's not that simple. But um, I think you just really have to pick your spots. Yeah. All right, before I let you go, I have to ask you about Phil, because he told me earlier this year that when he's home, he'll sometimes just ring you up for a casual game. And tell, tell me how that goes down and, and – and the trash talk, the bets, all of it. Just take, yeah. take me so behind we, the curtain. So we have a ton of fun. We play a lot at home because there's not that many guys in Southern California these days. Um, so we try to get a, a group of four pros if we can, but a lot of times we don't. So we end up playing with a couple good amateurs or three pros and a good amateur. Um, we play in San Diego a lot. We'll play go down to his courses. He'll come up to my course up at Shady Canyon. And it's such a good thing for us to be doing because it's so hard to recreate – actually wanting to pull off a shot when you're at home and when I'm playing Phil like I want to beat him <laughs> you know and and take even take the the bets out of it like obviously I don't want to give him my money but yeah. I just want to beat Phil Mickelson like I'm super competitive I want to beat him and yeah. he's beat me plenty I want to beat him so he talks so much too. and he, yeah he talks so much it's really fun to shut him up that's the best when he you know you've got him when he gets quiet <laughs> when he gets really quiet so there's been a couple times that um and he's come up. He doesn't like coming up to Shady Canyon anymore because I've had the best of him at my course. Oh, interesting. Um, and and he came up uh, right before Akron, and and uh, we're warming up on the range. And and he's like, "All right." He's like, "I got a lot of rules in my life." He's like, "But rule number twenty-four is never take on Steely at Shady Canyon." <laughs> Said, "I'm going to break that rule today because I think something great's going to happen." And we went out, and I was seven under after five, and I shot 59. <laughs> and he was like, I knew it, rule number 24. <laughs> so I, I had him pretty quiet that day, pretty quick. So that was a lot of fun. So how did you go seven under? Uh, I hold it on the first hole with a wedge. I would have loved to have seen his face. Yeah, he was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like he does that to me all the time, you know, but he didn't like that. So uh, hold it with a wedge on the first Par three, second hole, hit it three feet. Par five, the next hole, um, made a birdie. Another par three, long par three, made a birdie there. And then there's a drivable hole, and I drove it on the green about 40 feet and made it. So all of a sudden, I'm seven under after five. And Phil's made two birdies, but he's birdied both holes that I made eagle on. So he's lost both of those holes, too. So he's five down after five. It's like I'm two under, I'm five down after five. Like, what is happening? I mean, we know Phil likes action. So then does he, does he start, like, doubling the bets? Cause no, himself... we don't. We actually don't do any of that. There's no uh, presses. There's there. What we do is just a straight closeout game. Yeah, interesting. So it's just it's an 18-hole match, and then there's a 
there's one press at dormy. So when you get down, uh, if you're three down with three to play, you, yeah. you play for half. So What are the typical stakes? Uh, one Coke versus half a Coke. <laughs> so, like, one Coke for the 18 hole, half a Coke for the... <laughs> how, how expensive are those Cokes? They, they can get a little expensive. <laughs> we, we don't like to play for anything that's going to make anybody not friends at the end of the round. That, that's a good rule of thumb. So we want... The, the thing is, I, like, like I said earlier, I don't, I don't want to give my money to Phil, but I certainly don't want to lose to Phil. That's yeah. most important. Yeah, I get so, that. Yeah, so it's it's a lot of fun. And it, what it does for me is, like, sometimes we'll play, let's say, on a Friday. And we play, and I go, God, okay, I'm, I guess I'm not driving it as good as I thought, or I've been working on this shot, and it wasn't that great. I didn't, I didn't do this right. I didn't do that right. So then Saturday, I'll go practice those things. And then we'll play again on Sunday. And I'll get to see again, like, okay, did I make some adjustments that are helping me? Interesting. You know, did I I drove it bad on Friday, but I worked on it on Saturday, and then I drove it good on Sunday. It gives me confidence going into the week. Yeah, it so, just makes the, everything more focused. Yeah, it does. It really it gives you tangible things that are going on in your game versus like if I just go out and play with my buddies, it's like they go, "Oh, you played great today," and it's yeah. like uh, they don't really know. Yeah, I mean they do, but <laughs> you know, I'm like, "Well, that caught the fairway, but that was 30 yards right of my target," you know, and I made a birdie, but. It, the shots weren't great kind of thing. Like, you always know as a player. I'm the ultimate realist as a player, probably to a fault. Yeah. All right, so last thing. The fifth major is coming up. That's that's the Safeway Classic. Of course. Your annual annuity. Why have you dominated that tournament lately? So I, I've been asked this a lot, obviously. Like, what is it about the course and everything? The only answer that I have to it is that the course makes sense to me as far as what we were talking about earlier, when to be aggressive and when not to be aggressive. I know certain pins, how to play them. Uh, it just makes sense to me. You know, like, okay, on this pin, let's hit driver, let's get it up there because we know if we're in the rough and we can't stop it, we can play it over here and it's an easy chipper. We know, like, just lay it up in the fairway here and whatever club you have in, you can hit this close because it comes off of this slope or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I've won it now two years in a row and almost won it the year before. I ended up finishing 17th because I bogeyed five of the last six or something like that. But I led for the first 66 holes that year. Um, so that was nice vindication the next year when I did win. And I've won it when it's been soft and when it's been firm. It was soft and rainy two years ago, and it was firm and, and hot, and we had fires last year. So um, I've, I don't know why exactly that is, is my thing. I think part of it's just the fresh start. I really like you know, getting the season going, and I've usually been home with my buddies just goofing around playing a lot but not practicing as much which maybe is the secret for me as well um because i normally have a couple weeks off after the last two years it's been after the third playoff event and uh i just play with my friends i'm like i'm not gonna practice like i'm just gonna go out and play and i go play and then i do a little practice monday tuesday wednesday that week and i'm ready to go for some reason that's great all right well the king of napa brendan <laughs> Steele. thank you for uh, for all your time and insight this is good fun Good luck in the playoffs, and I think after listening to this, you'll have a few more fans cheering for you. All right. Thanks, Alan. All right. Thanks.